you would, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3. We'll be in the second half of verse 9. We're going to go all the way through the first half of verse 25. Romans chapter 3, second half of verse 9 through first half of verse 25. Let's go to the Lord and let's ask for his help this morning. Let's pray. Holy Father, I am weak. We are weak. Our bodies are weak. We're, our spiritual capacity, capacities are small. But we're asking for your help. We pray this all the time, and we continue to pray it. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Help me to preach your word with clarity and help it to stick into our hearts and change us. We are desperate for your mighty hand. Would you act this morning, again, for our good and for your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God, in all his majesty, is seated on his throne. And he's surrounded by cherubim and seraphim, and they're crying out in praise, and it's deafening. And as you look around, you see that everyone's face is on the ground. It feels like the very room that you were in is, is shaking. And everything gets quiet, eerily quiet. And you hear an angel call out, court is now in session. And you realize that it's your turn to step before the throne, the throne of the Almighty God. In your life, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought, it is all under examination. The same angel who cried out that court is in session begins to belt out your charges one after another for what seems like an eternity. And finally, he finishes and he motions to you. And you know that it is your time to make your defense to the king, to God. What are you going to say on that day? Of course, the story is made up. I don't know all of the details of exactly how the judgment is going to happen and what it's all going to look like. But here's what I do know. I know that God is holy. I know that he will judge us. I know that I am a sinner. And I know that I need a defense. When it comes to making that defense, this morning I have to tell you some very bad news. You don't have the defense that you think you have. Your good deeds are not going to be enough. That defense is going to melt under the fiery wrath of God like an igloo sitting out underneath the blazing sun. However, I also have some very good news what we call the gospel. The good news is that God has provided a defense for us. And we're going to learn about that defense. We're going to learn that we can be declared good, even though there is nothing good in and of us, in ourselves. This morning, we are going to take a fresh look at the gospel. 
And again, here's what we're going to hear. The bad news is that we cannot justify ourselves. But the good news is that God can justify us. Now, you may be thinking, why do I need to hear another sermon on the gospel? I hear about the gospel every week. I was raised in this stuff. I already know all of this. If that's you, believer, let me give you four reasons that this sermon is still for you. Number one, we're really, really forgetful, right? We're, we're like the Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness, and God miraculously has rescued us from Pharaoh. He travels with us in a pillar of clouds, and by fire at night, he parts the Red Sea. He does all of these miracles in the desert. He sends manna from heaven. He does that, in a way, for us. And we, like the Israelites, what do we do? We cry out, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Why, why do you not care? I just want to go back to my old way of life. I just want to go back to Egypt. We often doubt God, just as the Israelites doubted God. Perhaps you have doubted God even this week. You've wondered whether he is good, whether he cares about you, whether he has any power to help you. Well, what's the remedy? A fresh look at the gospel. That's the antidote that we need to remember where we came from and who God is. So we need this sermon because we're really forgetful. The second reason we need it is that this is an opportunity to rejoice in your salvation again. David prays, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Do you remember when you were a kid and like it was Christmas time and how pumped you would get? Don't you wish that you could recapture that joy? Well, as we revisit the gospel this morning, ask the Lord to stir up your affections, to bring you back to that place where when he saved you and your, your eyes were opened and your mind was blown and you adored him and you cried out to him in worship. Ask for him to do that again. Number three, the reason we need this sermon is because the gospel is the power of God. You aren't just dependent on God for your justification, but you are also dependent on God for your sanctification. The same God who died for your sins is the same God who empowers you now to fight against your sins. So let me just kind of give you a little bit of flavor of this gospel power to fight sins. Romans chapter 6, verse 10 through 11 says, For the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That's gospel language, right? Talking about how Jesus came and he died and then he, he rose from the dead. Then Paul says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, meditate on the fact that your Savior died and rose from the dead, so also you have died to sin and have been raised to a new life, to live in a different way. Now, I'm not going to unpack all the particulars of that text, but what I mean is, is that there's gospel language to give us gospel power to fight against sin. Let me just submit to you then that your battle for holiness will be substantially more effective 
if you'll take 10 looks at the gospel for every one look at your sin. That's what we're going to do this morning. The fourth reason this sermon is for you, believer, is because evangelism is important. This point is simple. The better you know the gospel, the more equipped you're going to be to share the gospel with others. Beyond that, the more we rejoice in our salvation, the more that flame is is stoked by the gospel, the more we're going to want to share the gospel with others. As we fall more madly in love with the God who died for us, we want to see other people love him like we do. So more knowledge, more joy, that spurs us on to evangelism. So, if you are a forgetful Christian who wants to rejoice in God more and fight their sin better and see more people saved, and I hope that's you, then this sermon is for you. And if you're an unbeliever or just a Christian in name only, this sermon is for you. I'm going to tell you about your predicament, but I'm also going to tell you about how God has fixed it. That's what we're doing this morning. So let's get to it first the bad news. We're going to start in verse 19. If you'll look there, follow along with me. Romans 3, verse 19, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. We sin. God says to do X, and we fail to do X. Or God says don't do Y, and we do Y anyways. We learn about these commands, and we learn about these trespasses, and what Paul calls here the law. Now notice too that Paul says, quite sensibly, that the law only speaks to those who are underneath its authority. That's pretty obvious, if you think about it. I'm not... Under, I'm not, I'm not obligated to obey any laws in Argentina right now because I'm not under its authority. I'm not, I'm not there. It's not speaking to me, to use Paul's language. The question for us then is, are we under the law? Are you under the law? Is the law speaking to you? Do you have some sort of moral obligation to live a certain way according to this law? And the answer is emphatically yes. There is a law that you must obey. The law that Paul mentions here, it at least is referring to the Old Testament law. This is a law that God gave to the Israelites. So think the Ten Commandments, the the civil laws, uh, the the stuff that has to do with like, oh, your neighbor's wronged you. Well, now what are we going to do? Think about things that have to do with purity rites and holy days, what we might call the ceremonial laws. But Paul isn't just talking about these laws. He's not just talking about the Old Testament law that was written on stones and handed down to Israel. He's using the term law more broadly here. How do I know that? Because it doesn't matter if I just say that. I want you to see it. So look in your Bibles. Look again at verse 19. How do I know that the law Paul's talking about here is more than just the law handed down to Israel? He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law Paul is talking about 
cannot only be speaking to the Jews, otherwise it would only silence the Jews. But this law is clearly speaking to everyone, since it silences every mouth in the whole world. Do you see that? Simple enough. So, in what sense is the law broader than just this Old Testament law that was given to Israel? Because it is. Flip back now, just one chapter. Go to Romans chapter 2, verses 14. Remember again, I'm, I'm trying to show you that we are under this moral obligation to the law. Romans 2.14, going slowly, it says, For when Gentiles, that's non-Jews, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Okay, so Paul twice says, they do not have the Old Testament law. Meaning, God did not come down from heaven and write, do not murder, on stone tablets and hand it to the Egyptians or to the Romans or to us Americans. And yet, Paul says the Gentiles are a law unto themselves. What we find is that Gentiles, who didn't receive this law on Mount Sinai, they naturally recognize many of the exact same requirements of the Old Testament law. Well, isn't that interesting? Everyone knows not to steal, not to lie, not to commit adultery, not to charge obscene interest. Everybody knows that we should make things right with our neighbor if we damage his property. There's also this innate sense that we need to be clean before we can go before our maker and our God. Why? Why does humanity naturally know all of these things? Who told us that? Well, we know these things because God has written the law down somewhere else than just those tablets and then just to Israel. Look at verse 15. Here it is. The Gentiles show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. It's written on their hearts. It's, in, it's on their conscience. Let's think of an example of that. Take, take Cain and Abel. Before God etched the words, thou shalt not murder, Cain murdered. Here's the question. Did Cain know that what he did was wrong? Let's think. When, when God asked Cain where his brother was, how did Cain respond? He didn't say, yeah, God, he's dead in the field over there. I killed him. Is that a problem? Like, was I not supposed to do that? No, that's, that's not what he does. He immediately lies and tries to deflect the question, saying, I do not know, lie, and then am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> well, yeah, you are, but I'm asking you a very specific question. Did, where's your brother at? Why does Cain do that? Well, it's because the law is written on his heart. There's this voice inside of his head, this God-given conscience that is speaking to him that says, you should not do this. And he ignored that voice, and he did it anyways. He did what was wrong. Is he innocent? No. He became a transgressor, and he will be held accountable according to the law. 
So, just to kind of summarize, make sure we're all on the same page, here's what we've established. The law, which is written on tablets and hearts, speaks to everyone, everywhere. Me, you, everyone is under the law. And we are going to be held accountable to God according to this standard. No one gets to argue that they did not know what was right and wrong. When it comes to your defense, you cannot plead ignorance. There is a standard. God's answer key is the law, and you are going to be graded according to that law. Now, are you going to measure up? Are you going to measure up? Everybody thinks that they will, almost everybody. Everyone assumes that it's going to be fine. But are you actually going to be fine? Because that's what's going to matter on Judgment Day. This sense that it's going to work out, that's insufficient. We need to get to the bottom of this question now. Am I actually fine? When I stand before the throne, are my good works going to provide a sufficient defense? Do you think that you're going to get to choose the standard by which you are judged? You won't get to. Are you thinking, well, once I explain any mishaps along the way, or once I show that other people were worse than me, or once I show how sincere that I am, then God will understand. Whatever about the law stuff, yeah. But, but like this standard here, I'll measure up. God will get it, and he'll receive me into heaven. You're banking on a lot. <laughs> and the Bible doesn't say that. God hasn't told us that. He has told us that we will be measured according to his standard, the law. Now let's see if we measure up to that standard. We could spend years combing through the law. There's so much that we could look at. But I'm going to let Paul take the lead this morning. He's, he's really only going to scratch the surface. So let's do that. Let's jump back up to verses 10 through 18. Romans chapter 3, 10 through 18. And here, Paul just pulls from a few verses in the Old Testament, six of them, to prove that both Jews and Greeks, again, that's everyone, are lawbreakers and sinners. All right, starting in verse 10, we'll go through 12 here. Paul says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Man, this summary statement here, out of the gate about the human condition is bleak. Let's, let's just put aside all of our arguments about whether we're a good person. God's word is true. And there is no ambiguity here. God says no one is righteous. Meaning no one is going to have right standing with God during the judgment. More simply, no one is good. That's what he says. He says the humans don't understand spiritual things. They don't seek God. They do not do good. And everything in us, you're probably thinking this now, says that like this doesn't feel true. That doesn't, 
That doesn't ring true. Nobody does good. No, not one. What about the everyday soccer mom who's just doing the best she can, loves her kids? What about the sweet elderly grandpa who gives me such good advice and is always so kind to me? You're telling me that they're not good without Jesus? And the answer to that is yes. They're not righteous. They'll have no right standing before God. One problem here might be you're being tempted to use a worldly rubric for righteousness instead of God's rubric. Compared to others, maybe you have a clean record. But that doesn't really count for anything in court. You don't get to say to somebody, yeah, I know I messed this up, but like that guy messed that up. It's not how it works. If we judge ourselves according to God's standard, which is how we will be judged, then it becomes evident that we aren't really as good as we would like to think. Comparison won't have anything to say about it. On top of that, the Bible makes it clear elsewhere that even our good deeds are like filthy rags. That's really, really bad news. That means that we can do all kinds of morally good things, and we can. We can help the poor. We can be kind to our neighbor. We can work hard to support our family. But these good deeds are still tainted by our sin nature. Behind every good action, sin is crouching. Don't we know this to be true? Pride accompanies our generosity. Look at me. The fear of man pollutes our kindness. I just want to be liked. Idolatry, the family, infects our hard work. I'm doing everything I can for my family because they are the most important thing. These things are sin. And infecting all of these things we know is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, that sin that we hate in everybody else, but we can't seem to see in ourselves. It's ever-present with us. We're doing all these good works. We're like, everybody and God, y'all should be impressed. I'm so good. No. No, that is, that is not righteousness. It's filthy rags. Because pure, perfect motives with a perfectly Godward heart that loves him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that loves our neighbor as ourselves, it doesn't exist in humanity. That's not in here. We don't have it. So even when we are doing these morally good things, we're sinning. Sin is right there. That means that we cannot clean up ourselves by our good works. If you take a filthy, muddy rag and you use that to try to clean up your body, you're still going to be muddy and dirty. It's not going to do anything to make you clean. Now that's our good works. Let's talk about our bad works, which is where Paul takes us next. Let's continue, verses 13 through 14. Paul says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. It's a snake. And their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The Proverbs tell us that the power of life and death is in the tongue. 
Are we creating more life or are we creating more death with our speech? The answer to that is that we create a lot of death, don't we? Paul says, our throats are like an open grave. That's kind of a weird picture, but let's think about it. It means that our throats are like this open pit with a dead body in it. He's saying something about how deep down inside we're dead. And this dead body, it produces all this filth and stench that rises up from within us and comes up out of our mouths and onto everybody else. What does that look like? like what, what is he talking about? You ever been deceitful? You ever lied? What about like little white lies, right? Like many respectable sins, there is no biblical support for it. It's just sin. Here's what the Bible says about little white lies. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Lying is lying. Half-truths that intentionally mislead, it's lying. But it can get worse than that. You ever just told a bold-faced lie? Have you ever told a lie to get out of trouble that caused an innocent person to get in trouble? And then have you ever been so committed to that lie that you didn't come out with the truth even as you watched that person get hurt? Why does this happen? Because humans are dead on the inside and it produces all kinds of deceit. It's things like this. We, we want to protect our image. We, we, don't, we don't want to get in trouble or maybe worse, we want to execute vengeance against somebody, and so we intentionally use our words to get them in trouble. There's something going on in us that causes us to deceive. What else? Paul says our tongues are like poisonous snakes. We bite people with our words. We inject them with this corrosiveness, this venom, and it, it burns in their veins, and it rots their flesh. Or consider James. He compares our tongue to a fire. James says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Summary, our tongues are really, really bad. And they cause a lot of problems because we have a sin problem and unrighteousness deep inside of us. Have you ever gossiped? We've all seen how gossip can destroy entire lives. Rumors can ruin lives. You get a rush of enjoyment just for a split second. And it comes at the cost of somebody's life. What does your sense of humor reveal about your heart? Is it easy to make crude and coarse jokes? Do you rejoice in evil as long as there's a punchline? That makes it okay. You know, it doesn't make it okay. Does your speech give grace to your hearers? Or does it take glorious things and then trample them in the dirt? Jokes are good. Jokes are also very powerful. Do you use them for good, or do you use them to destroy? What about outbursts of angry speech? Have you ever been guilty of that? 
that thing starts to rise up in you and your, your conscience is like, don't go there. You're angry. You're about to say stuff that you shouldn't say. And you're like, no, no, I got this. I'm going to say this. We describe it as a volcano. There's this uncontrolled feeling that begins bubbling up on the inside. And then it starts to come out of our mouths and it erupts into this scolding fury of speech. Angry words burn our loved ones. We yell. We swear. There's this bitterness deep down inside of us that we unleash. And it's like an axe that we take to the, to the root of our opponent to try to cut them down. Have you ever done that? Do your arguments ever dissolve into this place where it's just a sword fight? And the only thing that you're trying to do is cut your opponent. Anger just takes over. And then you lunge for the weak spots. Their insecurities. Family history. Past events that don't have to do with anything. Just to hurt them. And then we make contact with our sharp words and, and we twist the knife into our opponent. What is that saying about us? Is that righteousness? In our hearts, we hide so many fears. Sin like the fear of man and bitterness and self-righteousness and these heart problems create this angry speech. God sees that. It is not innocent. So tell me, oh righteous ones, should God be impressed with our words? Compare it to his words. The word of God creates life, everything that we see. And it creates new life in Jesus Christ. His word is a fountain of living water, and it brings joy and peace to everyone who comes and drinks from it. Those are his words. But when, when our neighbor comes and drinks from the wellspring of our words, what do they get? Are they not poisoned by the dead body in our throats? Humanity itself is dead, and our words are filthy and venomous and bitter. He continues, verses 15 through 16. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Here's one. Have you ever murdered? Probably not. But have you ever physically hurt someone else? Or have you ever really, really wanted to hurt someone else? i got to tell you, that, that's coming from the same place. That's coming from the same kind of heart. We prove it. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So you stand before God and say, I haven't murdered anyone. And he's going to say, have you ever been angry? And you're going to say, uh, yeah, yeah, that hits. Murder and his little brother anger, it lives inside of all of us. The same sin that caused Cain to murder Abel lives in you and me. Doesn't our life bear witness to Paul's words? Where he says here that, we're all on a path of ruin and misery. Our anger and wayward words cause destruction everywhere we turn. We haven't even, 
there's so many other things that we could explore. We're just talking about some forms of speech in our anger. And already, already, we see that it has produced so much misery and pain in our lives. Now, you might think, because we want to be our own defense attorney, you might say, well, it's not causing ruin and, ev- and destruction everywhere that I turn. <laughs> but don't miss the forest for the trees, okay? Would you say it's typical or atypical for there to be some kind of relational tension in your life? How often are you in arguments? How often do you wish that you could take back your words? If people could see into your heart and they could see the stuff that's going around in your mind, how would they react? Why do these universal problems exist? Why can I say all these things to to you here and know that it's true of you and that it's true of me? It's because it's an obvious fact that humanity has a serious sin problem. We're messed up. We're not right with God, and we're not right with each other. No one is righteous. No, not one. Is that not true? Our lives prove it over and over again. What it comes down to for the unbeliever who continues to embrace all this sin is verse 18. Paul says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you know who you were going to talk to on Judgment Day? Do you understand just how perfectly holy this God is? He is not casual about sin. And he will not be casual about your sin. Get that idea out of your head. Lord, help us get that idea out of our head. And if we really believed that, that he isn't casual about sin, that he is holy, if we were afraid of his judgment, and if we respected his authority, we would turn away from sin. We would do anything that we could do to get away from that stuff, to get on the right side of the law, to be in good standing with that God and that judge. Or at the very least, we would fall on our face in desperation, saying, God, I can't get on your right side, but I know I'm on the wrong side. Help me. Proverbs 16, 16 says, By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. We don't turn away from evil. Ergo, there's no fear of the Lord before our eyes. Because of this sinful rebellion against God, the fact that we don't love him, don't love our neighbor, we continue in sin. And here's the part I really want to drill down on again. Even though we see this, and it's true, human nature just has this insane confidence that we're still righteous people. Even though we embrace all this stuff, and we do all this evil against him and against each other, we're just, we're still sure that we're we're righteous. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, God says, I hate. So follow the logic. The fear of the Lord means you hate evil. Why? Because you understand that God hates evil. If God hates a thing and you fear God, 
then you'll be terrified to do that evil thing. You'll avoid it like the plague because your life depends on it. Think of it kind of like this. If dad hates it when I leave the door open, and I'm afraid of being spanked by dad, then I hate leaving the door open. Because <laughs> I don't want to be on the wrong side of this holy judge. Again, I have to ask, does your life reflect that you hate all the things that God hates? God hates sin. All kinds of sin. And the fire of his just wrath burns hot against all wickedness. That's why the Bible tells us to fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Where the worm never dies and where thirst is never quenched and where God is forever present not to bless you, but he's only present to punish you in his righteous judgment. And we sin and we worry about what others think, hoping that maybe we can just kind of do a little bit better than them. But but we don't look up. What about what God thinks about your good works and your righteousness? We must start worrying what God thinks. Do you feel the predicament that we are all in? We don't measure up to the law, which is the worst news you and I could ever hear. What could possibly be done to make us right with this holy judge? Well, this is not a call to redouble your efforts to try to do more good deeds, do more law-keeping in order to be justified. We've already said our good deeds are like filthy rags. So that's not going to work. And the reason is because the law was never meant to build a bridge between us and God. The law was designed to show you that the distance between your holiness and God's holiness is unable to be bridged. That's the whole point. Listen to verse 20. Put your eyes there. Romans 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So first, that word justified. I've been using it. Let me define it. Justification is a legal term. So think of a courtroom. To be justified means to be declared righteous. So when the judge condemns you, he's going to slam down the gavel and he's going to say guilty. Justification is the exact opposite of that. Justification is when God looks at you and the judge, God, takes that gavel and he slams it down and he declares you not only not guilty, but he goes a step further. He declares you good. He declares you righteous. That is justification, that declaration of righteousness. That's the verdict that we're all desperate for. Again, when we stand before that angel and he asks you to make your defense, We want to give some sort of response that means I will receive a declaration of righteousness. But you will not receive that declaration of righteousness by trying to keep this law. Why? Paul says, there in verse 20, that through the law comes knowledge of sin. Knowledge of sin. God has written the law on tablets and hearts so that you may know that you do not measure up to God. 
That's the point. That is a kindness. That is an incredible grace. God did not have to do that. He came to you and said, here's the measuring stick. I'm giving you a, a, a peek on the test that's going to come on Judgment Day. Here it is. You're not going to make it. You need to know that information. That's what he has done for us in the law. He's giving us a heads up that we're guilty. And what's the penalty for the guilt? Well, the Bible says, again, that the wages of sin is death. Separation from God and an eternity of conscious torment in hell. That's the bad news. I hope you see that we are in desperate need of a righteousness that we cannot get on our own. And that brings us to the best part, the solution, the good news. The good news is that God has made another way for us to be counted righteous before him. How? Look at verses 21 and 22. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There it is. It's that simple. The way to be counted righteous before God on Judgment Day is through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, there is a defense available to you. And Paul's going to explain how it works. And I love that I've spent so much time talking about how bad all of this is, the bad news. And I get to tell you the good news in like a couple paragraphs because it's so short and it's so simple and it's so good and so easy to understand that God is taking care of it. And you can know this today with incredible certainty. You could recount it easily after we leave today. The good news and how I can be made right with God. So here it is. Let's let Paul explain it to us. Jump down to verse 24. Follow along with me. Paul says, we are justified, meaning we're declared righteous by the judge, by his grace. Meaning, you can't earn it. You don't have to earn it. There's nothing that you can do or say that will require God to declare that you're a good person. He justifies according to his own unmanipulated will. And he does this as a gift. Meaning you can't pay him back for it. You don't have to pay him back for it. When someone gives you a Christmas gift, you don't write them a check. You just receive it. And you say thank you. We're justified by his grace as a gift. And while it's free for us, it comes at great cost to God. It comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So that word redemption, it means that God buys us back. You are made for God. But then because of sin, relationship was messed up. But God has made a way to repossess you 
and make you his again. How? By putting Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. The gracious gift of justification that brings you back into right relationship with God comes at the cost of the blood of God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. So remember when I said that there's a penalty for sin? Who administers that penalty? God does. God administers the penalty. He pours out his wrath on all sin because he hates sin. And who will bear the full weight of the wrath of this righteous God? You will, unless you trust that Jesus has bore God's wrath in your place as your substitute. That's what propitiation means. It means that Jesus satisfies God's wrath in your place. Friends, you can give your sin to Jesus, and he will give you his righteousness. How can this great exchange become true of you? In case you've already missed it, Paul says it again. He finishes by telling us, it is received by faith. By trusting in Jesus. By believing that it's true. And then in your heart, leaning on that fact. And saying, I can't do anything else. I don't want to try to do anything else to make myself right with God. Jesus has done it, and I receive it. If you've done that, then the exchange has taken place. When the angel asks for our defense, brothers and sisters, we get to point to Jesus. He lived without sin. Everything that we just talked about, no unrighteousness ever accompanied any of his good works. He perfectly loved God the Father with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his strength. He perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. His throat wasn't an open grave that spewed out all of this filth. He was never venomous and bitter. He was never using angry, evil speech. He never gossiped. He didn't cause ruin and misery everywhere that he went. No, he created life and life abundantly everywhere that he went. The blood of that sinless lamb, that is our defense. And his blood will speak a better word on that last day than any word of defense that we could ever make before God. My sin is paid. My guilt is gone. God will look upon Jesus and justify me. And that's it. That's the good news. So friends, unbelievers in this room, just to go one step further, I urge you to believe in this gospel. Lean on Jesus. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way, the gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. You are hopeless on your own, but Jesus Christ is dead for you. And his gracious gift of salvation is within your reach. 
All you have to do, step away from your sin. Give up on trying to justify yourself. Grab hold of Jesus. You don't have to keep living the same life anymore. You can have peace with the eternal God who loves you and who has made a way for you to be right with him. And finally, I want to finish our time where I began, brothers and sisters. I said that God is speaking to believers this morning, too. So recall the four reasons that I said this sermon is for you. Number one, remember. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Do you remember that old way of life? Do you remember trying to find meaning and joy in that life? Maybe you were saved at a young age. Maybe you were saved from that life. Praise God for that. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. One more time. Let's do it again. Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Do you remember that? That slavery... All the hatred that was just being exchanged. The foolishness. Just never really knowing like up from down. Living in that every day. Do you remember that? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We were once identified by our sin, and it was an awful way to live. Now we are identified in Christ Jesus, and we can know a new way as he sanctifies us. Amen? Number two. Rejoice. We have simultaneously been saved from our greatest danger, God's wrath, and been given our greatest treasure, God himself, at the same time. God hasn't justified you and then forgotten you. Like, you're not going to step into the courtroom and he's like, oh yeah, Jesus covered your sin, cool, you're good, you're in. Like, that's not the kind of relationship that he's set up here. He has reconciled you to himself brought you back into this deep, loving relationship that he's always wanted with us. He's done that through Jesus Christ because he wants to be with you. And he wants himself to be your greatest treasure, the highest and best joy in your life. Rejoice that the Father loves you that deeply because he didn't have to, but he does. 
I mean, consider the cost. God, in perfect triune relationship with the three persons of the Godhead, perfectly enjoying himself, not needing anything, sent one member of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, who was perfect, his only begotten son, whom he loved, and, whom, and with whom he was well pleased. And it says that it pleased him to crush him, to bring you back to himself. Rejoice. Rejoice in that truth. Because it is finished. Nothing can separate you from this reality. What can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Restore to us the joy of our salvation, Lord. Bring us to that place where this never becomes dull to us. Number three, regeneration. If God didn't hold back the blood of his only son, how will he not also, along with him, give us every good thing? One of the good things that God gives us is sanctification. He didn't save you so that you'll continue in this old pattern of life. No, he who began a good work in you in the gospel will continue to work on your life in sanctification through the gospel until he brings it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The same power that raised God from the dead is living inside of you because of the gospel so that you would live a holy life. So if you doubt that God loves you because of your sin, look to the gospel. If you doubt that God is able to overcome your sin, look to the gospel. If you doubt that God wants to cleanse you from your sin, look to the gospel. In your pursuit of holiness, go often to the wellspring of the gospel and draw up all the riches that you need for a life of holiness. Number four, repeat. Repeat what you have heard today to others. You can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 and tell somebody the bad news and the good news. You can do that. How will they know if they don't hear? And how will they hear if no one goes to them and preaches the good news? Our neighbors are living in sin. And a lot of that is pretty miserable. There's a purposelessness there. They don't have that relationship with God. And on top of that, they're guilty under the law, and one day they're going to stand before that judge. You can do something about that. Won't you do something about that? God, in his forbearance and patience, he's, he's withholding his wrath. He did it for you. Someone came to you and told you the gospel. Now he's withholding his wrath for others so that you would go and do the same. So go and repeat this good news faithfully to others. So, I don't know with any great detail what the judgment is going to be like. But as I said, I know that God is holy. I know that he will judge me. I know that I'm sinful. And I hope after today you can say, and I know that Jesus Christ is my defense. Unbeliever, put your trust in him. And brothers and sisters, remember where you came from. 
Rejoice again in what God has done for you. Lean into that regenerating power that comes to us in the gospel and repeat this good news to others. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. How can we thank you enough? I pray, Father, that these things would continue to be turned over in our minds, that you would work them deeply into our heart, and that you would bring about righteousness. And Father, we look forward to the day when we will be received into heaven with open arms because of what you have done for us in Jesus. Hallelujah. We praise your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church.